0: The Glory Center would like to welcome you to this podcast. We hope that this teaching will encourage and minister to you. And now, the message. All right, so the last few weeks, i um, been teaching from the book of Revelation. and I'm going to continue in that uh, vein today, and I hope, and I've had such good feedback on that, which is nice. You know it's nice when the people that choose to listen to you actually enjoy it a little bit get something out of it you know um, it's nice when you enjoy your own preaching and I usually do but sometimes you just think what well, the world happened today you know it happens right but um, been looking at the book of Revelation for several weeks and am going to continue in that vein and just a couple of nuggets to throw out there to get the ball rolling and to get our minds back in this place. Uh, The book of Revelation, and let me just pull this up here. I'm going to bounce around a few places and then we'll look at a few uh, specific little things here. So Revelation chapter one, verse one. (coughs) Pardon me. You know, my menopause was like full-blown gangsta mode today, man, beast mode. I like From the time I get up, like I drunk, I've got this new thing where I I don't like to get an iced coffee from Starbucks because I feel like there's, I don't know, it's like it doesn't seem to have the same effect on me. It's like you have to get their large or their venti, and it only has the caffeine effect of like their small or what they call tall. Maybe it's just me, but at home, I can regulate it, right? And so if I use one of these cups, which we have these at our house as well, I'll do two of these to have my morning coffee. But what I've been doing is I do the first one is you know I fill it up, but then I just put like ten pieces of ice in it, a little bit of cream, you know. And so I have my own iced coffee, and then uh, but this morning even with my iced coffee on the way here, and then with uh, the air conditioner blasting, man, I tell you, it's like hot flashes and menopause, just crazy. And then I'm in there at my office, man. I don't know what to do. I'm like and I'm, like my body up and like get in the refrigerator and like try some way to pull off and in here even during worship here i was like freezing and then i was like hot flat i don't know what's going on man it's ridiculous can i get a witness there we go the, some of the ladies filming what's that I gotta do something. I don't know why I'm talking about that. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going. <laughs> Nonetheless, I'll drink to it. You know? You're going to Revelation 1. We'll do that. Revelation 1. <laughs> so if you look behind me there, um, on the board or at your own Bible, once it says, of course, we, we've hammered this, but uh, it's worth doing the, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that's the Greek word where we get our word apocalypse, all right? The apocalypse of Jesus Christ, and the word apocalypse literally means to unveil or to uncover or to make naked, to disclose truth, to reveal what was previously hidden. (laughs) So it basically means to unveil. So it's quite literally the unveiling of Jesus Christ. So we have several... uh, what you'd call them? we have several uh, guidelines through which we interpret the book of Revelation all right and so it's worth repeating that the book of Revelation it's uh, it's an extremely Old Testament book in terms of the language that it uses it's almost the book of Revelation is almost a work of pure plagiarism all right and so that's one reason why the modern church especially for the last 200 years has gotten so off base with our eschatology or including the book of revelation is because we're not acquainted enough with the Hebrew, the ancient Hebrew mindset from the scriptures. And so we see these things in the book of revelation. And instead of interpreting scripture with scripture, we interpret it in terms of modern geopolitical events, which there's no, there's no basis for doing that. All right. First Corinthians two says, You compare spiritual things with spiritual things. And so we interpret the book of Revelation. So when you have things like, you know, uh, and it's a symbolic book, we need to understand that it's, it's not a book to be interpreted in a wooden, strict, literal fashion. Now the word literal, we talked about it last week, literally means according to the literature. Literally is according to the literature. And so we need to understand the type of literature that the book of the unveiling, the book of the apocalypse is. So first and foremost, it is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Can you dig it? Mm -hmm. And then he he goes on to say, uh, which he gave, uh, God gave him to show his uh, bond servants. Now notice this. The unveiling of Jesus Christ. So it's not the unveiling of America in the 21st century and North Korea and Cuba and Democrat or Republicans in office. It's the unveiling of Jesus Christ, all right? Notice what he says here, which God gave him to show a sponsor, but it's things which must soon take place. Everybody say soon. Soon. So from the time the book, the, the, the vision of the unveiling of Jesus is being given to John, the events were going to happen soon. All right. Uh, Then he says, he sent, communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Notice this, even to all that he saw. So it's a vision. So if you have a vision, you see things in the realm of the Spirit. Then he says it again. Notice this, verse 3 Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. Why, John? Because the time is near. So verse 1, these things will soon take place. Verse 3, the time is near. Now there's just no, there's no logical way to twist that, and manipulate that, and put it thousands of years in the future. Amen? Amen? So if this book is about the unveiling of Jesus, then what we see in the language of the book of Revelation is the removal of that which was veiling him. Now we know from 2 Corinthians chapter three and chapter four that Paul called the law of Moses the veil that blinded their hearts and their minds to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. So the law is the veil. Now think with me here, and I know I'm already going fast, here I go. Jesus, in 30 A.D., when he was crucified, the cross, the death, the burial, the resurrection, is what invalidated the law. All right? So it made the law, you know, invalid, uh, null, and void, whatever you want to say it. In other words, God, from that time on, God was no longer relating to people, Jewish people, on the basis of the law. Nonetheless, The law still quite literally existed in that the temple, which was the epicenter of, you know, the Mosaic cultist, the Mosaic system, the temple, all right? Uh, Let me show you the scripture here just to, to help you. Here's a, this will help you, this will say what I'm trying to say here. Hebrews chapter 8. i I got it right behind me here. Check this out. It says, when he said a new covenant, he made the first one obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish or ready to disappear. So in other words, the new covenant from the time it was instituted, particularly the, the cross is what brought it about. But the day of Pentecost is when it went to effect. That's the day the kingdom of God was inaugurated in the earth. All right. But there's still a 40-year overlap. All right. And even in America, you know, there was a time where the abolition of slavery, and then there it still took time from the time you know the the law is signed, enacted, enforced, and decreed until word can spread and get to everyone. At that time, given you know what I'm saying, because of uh, didn't exactly have the internet, you know. So it took some time for word to spread, things to happen. But think think this 40-year sort of motif or parallel is throughout scripture, all right. Think about the Exodus. So God liberates them, all right? And through their own fault, uh, what should have been perhaps under two weeks of a journey was a 40-year transition. So in that 40-year period, they weren't quite still in full bondage, but they weren't quite in the promised land either. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. 40 year period. <clears throat> Think about David. All right. King Saul the first king of Israel. And then First Samuel 15, 16, and we see how God tells Samuel, go and rebuke Saul and then go to the sons of Jesse and my king will be there and all that. So he takes David, First Samuel 16, and anoints him. So from that time, the anointing of kingship comes upon him. But there was it was still 40 years later. So he's anointed as king, but there's still a 40-year time or period, all right, until he actually stepped into that office, even though he's already anointed and equipped in one sense. There was still that time frame. Even today in presidential election, you know, a person gets nominated and elected, And there's still time until they actually, officially, you know, there's a handing off of that, the authority of that position, handing off the baton. So in the same way, Jesus was 33 when he was crucified, but it it was in the year 30 AD. So he invalidated the Mosaic system. So from God's perspective, God's no longer relating on this basis. However, there was a 40-year period until the full promised land because what happened in 70 AD the temple, which was the epicenter, it was the outward visual representative of the Mosaic system and the priestly system, all right? So there was that 40-year period in which the law system is still veiling the full reality, the full beauty. That's why Paul is constantly, you know, and all, all the ministers of the new covenant in the scriptures here, and, but they're still constantly babbling because it, it would be easy to say, you know, you're one guy, right? And it, it, you know, it's you, you say, "Hey, hey, everybody!" By the way, God's no longer, you know, you know, all of us in here. Let's say we're natural descendants of Abraham and Moses and the law system and the people of God. And I mean, this is drilled into. You know, it's we we don't really have a strong enough frame of reference for how their religious system was their life. You know what I mean? And, and I I would share a few things on that, but. Just don't have enough time. Just try to let your mind go there as much as possible. But to just come up and say, oh, hey, the Messiah did come. Oh, yeah. Well, his his name's Jesus. Okay. Faith comes by hearing, hear my word, get somebody healed, prophesy somebody, people start believing. Okay. And then what are these Jewish people going to think? Oh, the Messiah came. That's awesome. Well, let's go to the temple and kill an animal and give some praise to Yahweh. And it's like, no, stop, stop. You know, you don't have to do that. What do you mean we don't have to do that? You heretic? You know, I mean, this is a big deal. It's so hard for us to get our mind there, but I hope you can appreciate some level of that in these brief moments. But the book of Hebrews was written somewhere between 65, 66 AD. So right before the invasion, Roman invasion began, all right, in Jerusalem. Once again, when he says the new covenant, he made the first one obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete Growing old, ready to disappear. So we see this truth being... uh, And this is... The book of Hebrews is extremely uh, related to this understanding of the biblical last days and the passing away of the old covenant system. Oh my God. Let me just... Let's chase this rabbit for a moment, shall we? Rabbit trail. Nothing. Yeah, Not even a pity laugh. Check out... And I'll have it up here just to move as quickly as I can. Hebrews 101 says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, notice what he says here, Hebrews chapter one, verse two, in these last days. So the author of Hebrews identifies the time that he was writing this letter as the biblical last days. Now again, the last days, see that's a Jewish concept. That's not a modern, geopolitical, American, Western concept. That's a biblical, Jewish, Hebrew, ancient, Eastern mindset. The last days of what? Well, we just pick that up and say, well, the last days of human history, the last days of the world, and also what it's talking about. You gotta go to the Old Testament to get the last days. And you go to Genesis 49, where Joseph prophesied what would happen to Israel in their last days. You have to go to Deuteronomy 32, 33, where Moses prophesied to them, what would happen to them in their last days if they weren't faithful to God's old covenant system. So it's a Jewish concept. That's why Joel, a Jewish prophet to the Jewish people, in Joel chapter 2 says that in the last days. And then you see things all through uh, Genesis uh, with Joseph and then Joel chapter 2, Matthew 24, Revelation. And we talked about this, the sun, moon, and stars. That has nothing to do with the natural sun, the natural moon, the natural stars. The sun, moon, and stars always represents natural Israel. Joseph has the dream that the sun, moon, and stars would bow down to him. He tells it to his family. His dad was Israel. And Israel says, "What? I'm gonna bow down to you. The sun, your mother, the moon's gonna bow down to you. The stars, your brothers will bow down to you. All right, so you see all this happening. Then you get to Revelation chapter cast down to the earth. Well, if one natural, literal star fell to the earth, peace, goodbye, see you in heaven, this whole thing's over. Planet Earth is wiped out. But he was saying the sun uh, turned dark as sackcloth, the moon turned to blood, the stars of the sky falling. In other words, natural old covenant Israel were losing their covenantal exclusivity to the living God. It was lights out sun darkened, moon blood, stars down. They're losing their heavenly position from that particular, they could still come through Jesus, but that old covenant system was losing. What did he say its position? What did Hebrews 8 say? That which is obsolete. So am I making sense? Yeah. All right, so he says here that he's living in the last days. Uh, and there's many other things. Look, look at Hebrews chapter 10, check this out, man. this is incredible. Hebrews chapter ten. Don't you just love coffee? <laughs> I mean I don't know my coffee my caffeine intakes increased layout. Which last night though I was so tired I fell asleep around like ten thirty or something. I never fall and it was like raising the dead trying to get up the morning. I have got five alarms set. I don't know how many snoozes as I, you know, snoozing through, and oh my gosh, it was rough. Hey, that's another benefit of the iced coffee because it's not cold. Which I like hot coffee, but it's, you can just slam it. You can drink it real fast. So. <laughs> coffee addicts unite! You know, <laughs> so, Hebrews ten, check this out, verse thirty-seven. Hebrews ten, thirty-seven. here pages turn so I'm just waiting a moment here but I have it up here but notice what it says here for yet some of your translations might say in a little while by the way this is quoting an Old Testament verse what is it Habakkuk 3 maybe but um, Habakkuk 2 3 actually might be correct I don't know but he says well thank you 2 3 4 but it says in most of your translations in a little while but the NASB does it good because it's really strong in the Greek and it's a very little while. So notice what this says. We're not going to twist. We're not going to change. We're not going to manipulate to fit our doctrine. You know, we say stuff like, oh, I just want the truth. I just want the truth of the word. I don't care. Who don't care? And you've got so many scriptures that put this in the first century. And it's like, well, do you really care? Are we going to stick with our traditions, our less than 200 year old tradition? You know, what are we going to go with? The word of God? Or what we want to be the truth? He says, for yet in a very little while, a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And the church has been preaching delay for 2,000 years because we've not understood. Now, the early church knew this. This is the historic church position. They understood the centrality the importance of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, all right? So, author of Hebrews, which by the way, if you go through Hebrews chapter 10 and you get these strong warnings about not stepping over the blood and going back to the the animal system and he who sins knowingly and willfully, that's what he's talking about, is going back to the temple system because that system was about to quite literally be doomed, destroyed, wiped off the face of the planet. And so clinging to the temple was clinging to a sinking ship, all right? And so that's the warnings in Hebrews chapter 10. He says, for in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. Now check this out. Jump over to chapter 12 uh, just briefly here. And we had talked about some of these things, you know, but uh, just help you to see these things. Now this connects so many dots. It's just ridiculous in a good way. You know, It's just incredible. Hebrews chapter 12, verse one, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, and we've talked about the the cloud, the understanding of the the cloud reference, you know, the the, the Hebrew idiom. So Jesus, in Revelation one, he's coming on the clouds, but later on, chapter 17, 19, where it's at, he's coming on a white horse. So it's like, well, these are, well, which is it? Is he coming on a horse that's on a cloud? Or are we, being, are we interpreting these things the wrong way? These are Hebrew idioms. Modern, Western idioms are, you know, it's raining cats and dogs. So, you know, my uh, friend Bertie Britz, when he came over here to the States, uh, he's from South Africa, I said, Bertie, are you able to keep up with the American slang, the lingo, the colloquialisms, are you able to keep up with, it? and it's been enough time in, over these years, he said, I can mostly keep up. You know, because you don't even realize how often you, we say these expressions until you try not to, you know. So we talked about that quite a bit last week. Coming in the clouds, he's in a great cloud of witnesses. And so these are the saints. So when it talks about these clouds, uh, he just told you who these cloud of witnesses were. They were the saints, the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. So First Thessalonians chapter 4 talks about uh, Jesus and the clouds. Well, it might just not be talking about a literal white nimbus cloud. Maybe there's something a little deeper, a little more pertinent and spiritual here. But, uh, Jude, quoting from the book of Enoch, says that he would come with ten thousands of his saints. Perhaps these saints are the clouds, the cloud of witnesses that he's referring to.
1: So he says, let us
0: also lay aside the weight, and notice what he says, and the sin." which so easily entangles us. And the entire book of Hebrews has been talking about the singular one sin. All right? The sin of unbelief in Jesus and clinging to a law, legalist, works-based system. That's the singular sin that he's talking about here. And I'm glad it says the sin because he's talking about one sin, which is the same sin in Hebrews chapter 10 uh, whenever he said, if we sin willfully. All right? So, nonetheless, he said, so easily entangles us. And that's true, it's the easiest thing in the world to abandon grace and go back to works and performance. You know, you just make one little mistake or something just throws your day off and you instantly, oh, what did I do wrong? Oh, what can I start doing now to get right with God again? And just, it's the easiest thing in the world to backslide into legalism, man. And that's what Galatians is about when he talks about how they had fallen from grace and that they did so and whoever does so by... Going, coming under the law and trying to be made right with God through the works of the law. All right. Notice what he says. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, <coughs> the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So what's the answer to uh, letting go of or whatever the singular sin of legalism and works-based righteousness take eyes on themselves of put eyes on him Amen? Amen. Okay. Now notice there's a few more little things here um, Stay in chapter 12, but let's jump down to verse um, Boy, there's so much good stuff here <sighs> yeah. yeah, Jump down to verse 18 you have not come to a mountain that can be uh, touched into a blazing fire to darkness to gloom to whirlwind now, you get what he's talking about here Mount Sinai book of Exodus that mountain and to the bl- where the law was given and to uh, the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word would be spoken to them and this is baffling And this is Exodus 19, whenever, you know, Moses is the only one that went up the mountain. But God literally invited all the people to come up on the mountain. And they declined his gracious offer. God never wanted there to be a Levitical priesthood. Exodus 19 and Deuteronomy 5, you can go read it. He literally invited the entire nation to be a kingdom of priests. And they declined his offer. They said, Moses, you go talk to him. It's, and there's there's a lot of things we could I don't know uh, deduce from that and look into and consider concerning that possibility. But they were un what's the word? They were unjustly afraid of God. You know, they were afraid of Him. And of course, His perfect in His perfect love, there is no there's no fear. And so, if we've ever felt afraid of God, He was not the one making us feel afraid. Now, a lot of preachers try to make us feel afraid, and our own world experience and our own you know what I'm saying whatever things can make us feel afraid of God but the emphatic unchangeable truth is that we've never felt afraid of him that he was the one making us feel afraid it's projected onto him it's its unjust though you know what I'm saying in his perfect love there is no fear and I would to God and thank God it's happening more and more You know that the church would start preaching the gospel And you know, we we say you know, lost people need the gospel. Most of the church hasn't heard the gospel yet. Until we are resolved that sin is gone once and for all, and I know that's just too hard for some people's religion. But I can't help that because I endeavor to behold the Lamb of God who did in fact take away the sin of the cosmos. Hallelujah. That's not open for debate in my internal, you know, in my house, in my thinking, in my way of. It's just not. It's just not open for debate. First John 3, for this reason the Son of God was manifested, that he might take away the sin of the world. Amen. Well, did he succeed or did he not? We do not have the right to treat people like no good, vile, dirty, sinful, sorry, pathetic rats, that if they get their act together, then God might accept them and do something about their sin. The fact of the matter is he has remedied, fixed taking care of the sin problem. And our job is to let them know because people just don't know what their Lord has done for them. It's an identity crisis epidemic that's going on. People don't know they're forgiven and the world has been forgiven. It's our job to let them know. Amen? Amen. Rant over. Now, sound of the words, uh, they beg to not speak anymore. Check this out, trying to hurry. For they could not bear the command and then... Says, okay, you can have what you want, and now so even if a beast touches the mountain, it'll be stone thrust through. Check this out, and so terrible was the sight that Moses even said, "I'm full, I, I'm full of fear and trembling." Now look at verse 22. Woo! good stuff here. He says, "But you have come, you new covenant people, to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God." Now notice what it says, the Heavenly Jerusalem. Now, now let's slow down here. You have come. Now, you see that, right? Mm -hmm. You have come. Not you're working on it, not one day in the future, 2,000 plus years from now. Somewhere between 65 and 66-ish AD, he says, you have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. See, the heavenly Jerusalem is not a literal city that God is going to like you know how sometimes you see these like what are these mobile homes or whatever and it's on a big truck you know and it's on the trailer method. God's not taking a literal city out of heaven and relocating. you know what I'm saying the, the new covenant city of God is not a place it's a people we're the heavenly city of God we're the living stones Peter said that make up the foundation of this city okay you have come, to, what did Jesus say? You are a city set on a hill. We are the heavenly Jerusalem, all right? You've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and myriads of angels, to the General Assembly Church of the Firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, to God, the judge of all spirits of righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, And to the sprinkled blood, which speaks of better things than Abel. And then he admonishes them one more time. Don't refuse him who's speaking. Because uh, for if those did not escape when they refused him and he warned on earth, how much more? He's talking about, of course, the destruction of Jerusalem. Don't, Don't refuse his warning. The temple system is about to go down. Don't cling to that system. So that's what he's telling them here. His voice shook the earth then, but now he promised saying, yet once more will I shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. And we know the Jews called the temple heaven and earth. So Jesus talked about uh, heaven and earth will pass away. He was talking about the temple, but it's a Hebrew idiom. But my words will not pass away. Here he's talking about the temple, heaven and earth, all right? So he's saying that system, this heaven and earth is gonna be shaken. This old covenant system, which was outwardly represented by the temple system is going to be shaken and done away with once and for all. And then he talks about how the the new covenant, look here, this expression, yet once more denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain the new covenant system. Therefore, verse 28, since we have received a kingdom, so this kingdom has come. And most of you don't even know that Modern Western American dispensational eschatology teaches that the kingdom of God has not come. That it was put on hold. Even though there's literally no scripture for that. He says here we have received the kingdom. Let us have gratitude or grace in some translations. Whereby we can uh, offer acceptable sacrifices to All Alright, now. I did not mean to take all that time. Give me a few more moments here and we'll wrap up a few things in the book of Revelation. See, even that, now you read the book of Hebrews and there's a new frame of reference. You can read those warnings and you can realize, like when he says, sin willfully, he was literally talking to those Hebrews and saying, don't reject the Jesus system. Don't take your eyes off him and go back to the temple system. Don't step over the blood of the true lamb, holy, divine, pure blood, for the inferior blood of bulls and goats and go back to that system because it's a sinking ship. Don't go down with it. And Jesus warned them, and see, that's what the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, you know, when Jesus says to his disciples, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, flee to the mountains, all right? So all of that, we see all of this taking place there and then, which is a beautiful thing. Here's something, and let me throw this out there, that people ask me sometimes, because there's too many verses to deny these things, you know, and so... When left in context and all these things, but sometimes people say, Well, Jordan, could it be back then for the first century destruction of Jerusalem and the temple? But could it be like a double fulfillment for our future as well? And my my like, just thinking about it logically, I think, Well, what about the messianic prophecies? The Messiah was prophesying to come at a certain time and he did and suffer in certain ways and he did. So is, that gonna, is Jesus going to come and be born of a virgin again and die for the sins of the world again? You don't get to pick and choose what you want to double fulfillment for just so you can hold on to your traditions. You know what I'm saying that make you more comfortable? Let's let God be true and every man be a liar. Right. Amen? As hard as it may be, let's bow our knees at the altar of truth and at least consider some things from a scriptural standpoint. Now, Revelation Again, it's the apocalypse, the revelation of Jesus. And I'm gonna start in chapter two um, and just go through a few go through a few things here. And if you remember, of course, in chapter one. From the very beginning, what does John see? The unveiled, glorious Jesus. All right, um, and then he tells him, you know, share the things that uh, which were, which are, and those which are to come. I heard a ringing. It's just me here. It's never good to be the only one hearing things. No. <laughs> I, know I heard. Of. So. Hello, this is God. Yeah. There you go. What's that? Answer the phone. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> so the things which were, you know, he saw the unveiled Jesus in chapter one. Chapter two and chapter three are the things which are. That's the things to the seven churches. All right? And so we're just laying this foundation for the seven churches. That way we can get to all the stuff that you really want to hear. <laughs> the more fun stuff that some of you are uh, asking me about, and we're going to, but it's, it's necessary to understand, that th- to drill home the point that John, you know, distributed this letter, and I'm sure multiple copies of it, to seven literal churches in Asia Minor, what is now Turkey. But there were seven literal churches at that time, and this was written to them to help them. Right? So we, we're literally reading someone else's mail when we read the book of Revelation. Now, we looked at uh, Church of Ephesus last week. And with all of these churches, you know, Jesus is trying to help them in their particular distresses, being in uh, that Roman world. Because the first century Christians were enduring great persecution, by the Jewish unbelievers as well as the Romans. All right, now a couple of things worth considering. Of course, we see very strongly in the beginning parts of the Book of Acts how the Jews were persecuting them and bringing them for the councils and beating them, and it was so—it amazing how they would worship God and. and, and and you literally give God praise that they were considered and counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. How oh, you talking about a revelation of the goodness and love of God? Oh, I mean, if my internet goes out for five seconds, I just lose your mind. You know what I'm saying? How dare Netflix take three seconds to refresh? You know, like you just. But these guys are literally suffering real persecution. And of course, many people in the world are as well. Uh, but they were suffering from the Jews and the Romans, all right? And this particular place in Asia Minor, you know, this is a hot spot in the Roman Empire. Uh, but we looked at some things concerning um, Ephesus, and uh, I just don't have time to go into it, but you can check it out from last week. But with all these churches, he's helping them to repent, to change their mind, to rethink, to, to uh, I don't know, uh, resist. The mentality coming from them, from the Jewish Old Covenant mindset, that's persecuting them, as well as the Roman mindset. And it's you know it's really even when you read the Gospels, it's important to understand the viewpoint of the Caesars. And the Caesars were considered divine beings and were literally considered, uh, and uh, uh, what's the how would you say it, uh, incarnate deities. Alright, so they were literally worship. Caesar worship was a real thing, alright? And the Caesars, when they in this mentality, when they became flesh, you know, uh left their heavenly estate and became a man, you know, uh, they were literally called and considered the sons of God. Alright? Uh and of course you have Uh, The Greek mythology and uh, the Pantheon with Zeus and all the other different gods. So just to say that Jesus is Lord was a big statement because Caesar was considered Lord. And to say that Jesus was the son of God was not only offensive to the unbelieving Jews but it was also uh, dangerous and threatening to the Roman guards and the Roman mentality and the cultic Caesar worship because the Caesars were considered the sons of God. Sons of the gods. Alright? So we really put this in its own context, and it was a radical thing to say that, yeah, this guy who got killed and uh, he came back to life—we saw it, but you didn't. But it really happened. Uh, he's God, and you know, he's God in the flesh. He's the Son of God. That's that's fighting the Caesar system. You know, it's a big deal. And then we'll look at how that related to the mark of the beast in the first century, where you you literally, when you would come into the places of uh, uh, commerce and business, you couldn't buy groceries. You would come to the, uh, I'll, I'll get the name of it. It, 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 it's on the tip of my tongue. There's an idiom for you, right? It's on the tip of my tongue. I can't fully access it. It may come to me while I keep talking here. But you would have to come to it, and they would take some of the incense that was ever burning for Caesar at, before you walk into the marketplace, and they, they would take the incense, and they would rub it on your hand or on your forehead. So as you're walking through, they see that mark of the beast because of the Caesars, Particularly Nero was called a beast, literally, but they see that mark on you, and you couldn't shop or buy anything without that mark. But in order to receive that ash mark from the incense of Caesar, so you could shop, buy, sell, etc., uh, you had to say when they put it on you, "Caesar is Lord." All right. So, anyways, you start seeing this first century context and how these things played out. Am I getting anywhere? If I went way too far, praise God. <laughs> okay. Uh, picking up here. Uh, let's see, where are we at? Smyrna? We? Yes. Smyrna, okay. We looked at Ephesus last week and uh, alright, check this out. We'll just try to get through Smyrna and maybe Pergamum if we have time. Now, he says, and to the verse 8, Revelation 2.8, he says to the angel of the church in Smyrna right? which by the way, I don't think I mentioned last week, Ephesus is the first church Uh, Ephesus means to permit or permission. Just do with that what you will, but just so you know. The word Smyrna literally means myrrh. You know, like myrrh, frankincense and myrrh, it means myrrh. So just a little tidbit for you there. Um, And the seven churches, as you go, as they're listed in the book of, uh, the first chapters two and three here, they're listed in the order that it was called the Roman road. As you would go through Asia Minor in that direction, they're listed in the order. So Ephesus would have got the letter first. Then the guy taking the letter Smyrna would have got it next. Then Pergamum, then Thyatira. So they're listed in the proper geographical order, all right? Just another little uh, tidbit for you there. Now, um, and just one more little uh dug it for you, just to help get our minds in this place. And Any of you have ever heard of the great poet, Homer? What, what did he do? The Odyssey? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, he, he was from Smyrna, actually. So just
1: a little thing
0: to put your mind to help connect a little further there. You know, you want to, you know, engulf your mind as much as is possible in these things in their own context, you know, it helps. So, okay, now. He says, to the messenger, the word angel means messenger, so, to the messenger of the church in Smyrna, right, the first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, now this is, just beautiful nobody sees things like Jesus you know he says I know your tribulation and your poverty and then in the parentheses oh by the way but really you're rich you know it's incredible and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews but are not but are a synagogue of Satan Now we know from Romans chapter 2, Paul very emphatically, very strongly goes through the reality that, and these are Paul's words, he says, who's a true Jew? Not the one who keeps the law or holds to the law outwardly, but the one who keeps it inwardly, through the new birth in other words, through faith in the Messiah, all right? So... These false Jews, so what, what is John saying here? The now, as of the new covenant age, what was the false Jew? The one who rejected the Jewish Messiah, and were trying to deny him and shut down his kingdom and his system and enforce the old, outdated, obsolete, old and dead way as opposed to the new and living way. Hebrews references there. The synagogue of Satan. And see, that's what the temple had become. All right, the temple had literally become the synagogue of Satan. All right, you think if you think about this visual representation that represented everything visually, uh, you know, and there's many details about the inside of the temple, and uh, we don't have time to get into right now, but it was, it was. You know, I don't know what you would even... The White House, is that what you would liken it to? Is the American political. The White House is representing, you know, the temple, man. I mean, this was it. This was headquarters, baby. <laughs> you know, I mean, this was the, you know. It, was, it And yet, it's a synagogue of Satan. All right? Incredible. Because God left, man. God left the premises, you know. You know, we talk about putting God in a box. The only time God was ever put in a box was in a ark in a little spot in a temple and he willingly died on a cross and uh, gave up the ghost, the King James says, whenever he dismissed his spirit from his body and the top of the veil torn down the middle and God hit the road, man. (laughs) And now if God wants to give his address, he'll never again say, I'm only in a building in a box in Jerusalem. If God gives his address, he gives you because we are where God lives now. We're the heavenly city. We are the heavenly new Jerusalem. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Amen. Amen. Jesus said in John 14, I will send you the comforter, the spirit of truth. He will be, he's been with you, he will be in you, and he will never leave you. Amen. Love that. Hallelujah. So now there's a new system. Now look here in verse 10, a few more moments. Uh, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Then he says this, but be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. <clears throat> well, let's we'll just read here for another next verse. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Now, seven times in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus uses that phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear. And it's just a neat little tidbit, I guess, to me is, that in the Gospels, seven times, Jesus said, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. So we see that parallel to these. And it always had a reference to switching from an old covenant age mentality to a new covenant age mentality. So here we see him ministering this to his churches, all right? And, you know, I wish to God we could could live this life without suffering. You know what I mean? It's just not the way it is. And, uh, you know, sometimes in our misunderstandings in our faith groups and in our grace groups. Sometimes it's almost like if I just have enough faith or if I just have a good enough concept of grace and all this somehow I can avoid suffering and we're just, it's just not really a reality. But we are promised victory. You know what I'm saying? Greater is he who is in you than he who's in the world. Jesus said in John 16, he said in this, verse 33, in this world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And then in 1 John, he said, Who is he who overcomes the world? Except he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So if I have faith that he is the living, resurrected Son of God, then I have within me world-overcoming victory. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You know, the Lord spoke to me years ago when we still lived in Tennessee. Uh, I was at the office one day and he spoke to me and said that there's never anything that I will ever encounter or that will come up against me that I can't and won't overcome because he already overcame it 2,000 years ago. Yes. So there's literally nothing, man, no trials, no certain, you know what I'm saying, nothing that we will go through that we've not already overcome and received victory over because Jesus... Who is within us, and as he is, so are we in this world, he already overcame it. He overcame and spoiled all principalities and powers. Colossians <laughs> 2, Ephesians 1. And he did it for us. Hallelujah. Like, amen? amen. <laughs> um, and there's so many little tidbits here we could get into, but um, just this last little thing here, and then I'm going to do my first closing. He says, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." He who overcomes... Now, the problem with this is this is another one of these great verses that legalism hijacks. And there's nobody ever really communicates what it means to overcome, but, but they say it and sort of imply it in, that it has something to do with your works and your personal godliness and your personally not sinning to whatever they consider an acceptable amount. And so if you do this, this, and this, you will overcome. And then, and then there's so many. Well, what does it overcome? Well, you'll make it in the rapture. Or you'll, be, you know, there's always, but it's just nonsense that's not here in the scripture. Because John is extremely clear. The same John who wrote this. It's like the church at Ephesus. Whenever he said this one thing, return to your first love. See, legalism hijacks that and says your first love, you're not on fire, you're not zealous, you have to do more, you've got to get back like you were. you got to love God more, you got to do all this stuff. And yet the same John who wrote this said in 1 John chapter 4, herein is love, not that we love God, but that he first loved us. So legalism comes along and hijacks these glorious new covenant truths and always perverts it and twists it, and I'm getting upset just talking about it, (laughs) makes it about your own legalistic performance when it's about Jesus' finished work performance at the cross. So herein is love, not that you first love, not that you love God, but he first loved you, that's first love reality, that's new creation love, God's love for us. This life I now live in the flesh I live by the faith of the son of god who loved me and gave himself for me and that's faith that works by love faith that's based on god's perfect unchanging love for me amen amen, amen. that's first love and then you know this thing about overcoming first john said very clear who is he who overcomes the world except he who believes that jesus is the son of god And so, and they had pressures from the Jews and from the Roman cultists and the Caesar worship. Uh, It could, you know, it could really cost you. It was, uh, well, we could probably look at that as we wrap up here. But notice he says he will not be overcome by the second death. There's a lot of things to get into that. Uh, When the death system, uh, the mosaic system was overturned and destroyed in 70 AD, I think there's dynamics to that concerning the second death. Or you might just, you know, it's, People say a lot of things about it. So whether it's uh, just spiritual death, whether it's the destruction of Jerusalem, when death itself uh, is thrown uh, to the lake of fire, all of that, whatever, uh, it can't touch us. And Jesus said in John chapter 5, whoever believes in me will never die. So, uh, because he's already passed from death to life. Amen? In closing, we'll look at this next... Very quickly and we'll be finished. Pergamum, to the angel, the messenger of the church, Pergamum, right? The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. Verse 13. And let me say, by the way, Pergamum was the capital of Caesar worship. It was just as Jerusalem had the temple and was, you know, the Jews every year would multiple times go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem to present themselves and to sacrifice and all these things. But Pergamum was the home, the actual home in uh, Asia Minor for Caesar worship. So uh, very interesting because he says here, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. So it's very interesting because they had pressure not only uh, from the Jewish system, but from very strong, and it can cost you your job. Uh, some of it can cost their life, their income, their, their livelihood by denouncing uh, the, the certain careers and jobs and things. So it was very costly to be a Christian, you know, and we may look a little more at that. But he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, that you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, here said, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now we know from church history who Antipas was, Whenever John, the Apostle John, John the Beloved, John the Revelator, whenever he was exiled and banished by the wicked emperor Nero to the Isle of Patmos, John personally appointed Antipas as the presiding bishop. So he sort of took over in John's stead. You know what I'm saying? He held the fort down. <laughs> you know, whatever. So, uh, But he was put to death by the Caesar cult there. He was actually led... Uh, to one of their places of worship, where they had an idolatrous bro- a big, uh, like a bronze bowl, and he was led there uh, burned alive. Actually, so, but he was faithful even unto death, pointed by John. And uh, isn't it amazing, Jesus? Here, you know, the Book of Hebrews chapter six says he is not unfaithful, God, to forget our work and labor of love. Ah, that's beautiful, you know. And then here is Jesus commending his servant, his child, Antipas, who refused to bow down no matter what it cost and was faithful even unto death. You know, Satan can stomp out individuals, if you will, sometimes, but he can never stomp out the kingdom. He can never stomp out King Jesus. You know, it's just one of those things, man. Take one of us out Ten more will rise up in, in their stead You know what I'm saying This gospel Daniel 2.44 says It is an everlasting Ever increasing kingdom yes. Jesus likened the kingdom unto leaven That fills the whole earth ah. It just keeps growing And sp- A little leaven Leavens the whole earth Good leaven or bad leaven And the, Jesus Matthew 13 the, the leaven of the gospel Ever spreads Ever fills Amen next verse but I have now notice this he said but I have these few things against you so he's going to help him. aren't you glad the Lord you know Jesus is the only person it seems that can fully do this perfectly do this we endeavor to to do this but he's the only one who can point out destructive beliefs or destructive behavior patterns without ever making you question your identity or your perfect righteousness or your perfect forgiveness Jesus will never correct you in a way that will make you feel that your forgiveness is in question or that your perfect righteousness is in question. It's like your kid, man. London and Haven, they may I may have to correct, but their sonship, their standing is never in question. Right? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. So, all right. Now, you said that I have these few things against you because there uh, you have some there in Pergamum who hold to the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak, the king, Book of Numbers, uh, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to com- uh, and to commit acts of immorality. Now we know Balaam and Balak, Book of Numbers, chapters 21, 22, 23, 24, right through there. Balak wanted Balaam, to call down a curse, all right, on the children of Israel, on the people of God. And, of course, we see he tries to multiple times, but God literally won't let him call a curse down on them. And it's like the old saying, it's so beautiful and so true. You cannot curse what God has blessed. We, we as the, the people of God, we are literally curse-less ground we are curseless ground God took the the red dust of the earth and he breathed himself into it the breath of life God literally imparted his own identity himself into this earth and God saw everything that was good and he saw us and we were very good and we are literally Curseless ground. And in the New Testament, God does the same thing again. After the resurrection, he breathes on the disciples. That was when they received the new birth. So once again, God breathed his life back into humanity. We are curseless ground. Amen? Amen. So what, but what we see here is some of these people trying to uh, engage in some capacity... Uh, some of these same things here. It says the teaching of Balaam. What did he do? He didn't want to do it at first, but he finally yielded to pressure. Mm-hmm. And some of these people were perhaps yielding to pressure of the Caesar cultists, the Caesar worship system. And it says, Who kept teaching Bala- uh, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality? And it would seem that some of these people were giving in to the pressure and uh, engaging in some of these uh, idolatrous acts. And we know what many of them were. Uh, There were uh, sexual, uh, some of the temples had sexual practices which were supposedly forms of worship to the the Roman gods, the false gods, and uh, eating different uh, sacrificial meals, just like we have Holy Communion. You know, some of these other groups had some of their own things. And And then he says, Uh, Also, some of you, uh, verse 15, some some who, sorry, in the same way hold to the teaching uh, of the Nicolaitans. Uh, What we do know about this Nicholas, these Nicolaitans, was that uh, according to the church father Irenaeus, uh, when you go to, what is it, Acts chapter 6, whenever they appointed Elkins and uh, Elkins? (laughs) It's <laughs> yes, deacons and elders rolled into one. <laughs> elders and deacons. When our, Nicholas was uh, one of the ones who uh, that was appointed to that position of leadership, but later on he apostatized. And, um, I'm trying to remember. Let's see if I have it here. I think it was Nicholas. Let me see here. Where do I have this? Where do I have this? I believe it's uh, Nicholas. Uh, whose name literally meant to conquer the laity. And so there was perhaps a perverse form of leadership and control. It may have been uh, the the Nicolaitan. I very stand to be corrected on that if I'm confusing his name with something else. Somebody feel free to look that up at your leisure. Nonetheless, therefore, repent, of course, what does repent mean? rethink, change from error to truth, literally to change your mind, that's uh, Or else I'm coming to you quickly. Now see right here, because people try to take Revelation chapter 1 where he says I'm coming quickly, and they say, well, that's 2,000 plus years in the future. Well, you know, right here, he's telling this particular church, I'll come to you quickly. Well, there's a pretty good chance that this particular congregation isn't still in Turkey. They've probably passed on by now. So you can't. You know what I'm saying? Let's. If you leave everything the same, put it in context. It means what it says. Then he says here, uh, "I will come and make war with them with the sword of my mouth." In other words, God's truth. What does the sword represent? The double-edged sword, the word of God. His truth will come and fight against the errors that put people in old covenant legalistic bondage. Mm-hmm. All right. Last verse. He who has an ear to hear? Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give him some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and a new name on the stone which no one knows but the one who receives it. And uh, that's very interesting, and I think it speaks particularly of our new creation identity. Because Jesus said in John, I am the true bread which comes from heaven. And then this new name. See this what how's it worded here? A new name written on the stone. See, the old man has died. But there's a new creation man that's left. And that word know there, it's it's one it's that common word you hear about so often. It can mean knowledge, but it also can literally mean sexual intimacy. All right? And so it's an intimate personal identity. See, as the body of Christ, we all have the new creation identity as a whole. Because there was the old creation But then there's the new creation Whoever's in Christ, the body of Christ But it's there, you also have your own Unique son or daughter of God Identity it, It's See, what's he say? No one else knows it In other words, it's unique to you he, He's your dad He's your father He's not just the God of Billy Graham Or the God of the church as a whole He's our intimately and uniquely Each one of us, our very own father And he can speak to you in ways that just, just like he speaks to all these churches, things that were particular to their region and to their customs and to their struggles. He knows exactly what they were going with and the truths that they were holding to and and standing firm for and then the errors that some of them were yielding to that would destroy them. And he's trying to help them and pull them out of those destructive things. You know what I'm saying? He knows each and every one of us right where we're at. And you know, today, each so many of you will get different little things that helped you and stood out. you all heard the same words, but one little thing will stand out to you and one little nugget will lift you up and help you. And, and he just knows how to do that, man. And that's a big good God, amen. Hallelujah. Well, I'm finished. The Glory Center would like to thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope that it is encouraged and ministered to you. We also would like to invite you to check out our website, at glorycenter.org.